0: If it feels difficult, it's because it is difficult and it's going to continue to be difficult. And we're always going to have challenges and issues. We're always going to have that. And so, what we need to learn how to do is to manage ourselves and manage our attitude and try to be as solution oriented as possible, but to accept that we're going to be upset. But there's always that season where they do bloom. And so, you just have to keep going until you reach that. That's what I tell people
1: because that's real. Welcome to Star of the Doubts. I'm your host, Jared Easley. Join us today. Hey, it's Jody Mayberry. What's up, Jody? Oh, Jared, it's
2: always good to join you on Star of the Doubts.
1: (laughs) We appreciate it. And Jody, you came to me and you said, hey, there's this guy named John Griffith. You know, I, I really think we should, you know, interview this guy on Star of the Doubts. And dude, absolutely. Anytime Jody makes a recommendation, I say yes and more yes. So our guest today is your recommendation, Jody. It's John Griffith. Now, John may not be someone that some listeners would expect to be on Star of the Doubts. He's not an entrepreneur and he doesn't have an online business, but John has an incredible story of Starving the Doubts and helping others to do the same. John works for the California Conservation Corps and spends large amounts of time in the wilderness with youth, many of them who have never been in the wilderness before. John is also the author of the book for young adults and he's a YouTube sensation. You can learn more about John by checking out his YouTube channel. His YouTube channel is Totem magic going mad. Welcome, John.
0: Welcome. Yes, <laughs>
1: yes, thank
0: you. Sorry. I was caught up in that. That was a good introduction. Thank you. I'm glad to
1: be here. <laughs> All right. Now, John, we have a question we typically ask most new guests and it, okay. it hasn't come up on the show recently. And, and so it's kind of nice to bring it back. Uh, but this is a show uh, where we've asked this question many, many times. So you get the privilege of answering the question that kind of kicked off our show for many, many years. Or many, many episodes. So this question is, what is the best concert that you have ever been to? Wow,
0: that is not a question I was expecting. And I've been to so many concerts, so let me just think. But most of them happened in the 90s, and 80s and 90s, so you can imagine what they probably are. I guess I'm going to say that it was Suicidal Tendencies. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it was uh, at least a lot of regular concerts were good too, but... Um, Susan Altenancy's yeah. band, it's you know, it was a rock band from the 80s, early 90s. I mean, they're still around. They still have a really big fan base. I haven't listened to them in years. But what made the concert so incredibly cool was the lead singer came down off stage and walked through the crowd for hours while another band was playing. And he did this before and after his band went up. There was like three bands playing. And he shook hands with everybody. and stopped and talked to us. And it was like really thrilling because some of the people I went with were huge fans. And I just love how he got so personal. And uh, I guess that made it my favorite
1: concert. And I'll say this for the record, John. We've done a lot of episodes of this show over the last three years, and no one has ever
2: said Suicidal Tendencies for the (laughs) answer to that question. So well played. (laughs) Red on. Well, John, we have to start with the video that went viral, the thing that people have seen you on or if they've heard of you. It's probably connected to this video. Tell us the situation surrounding the video and what happened after you posted it on YouTube?
0: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting when we start off with this question because yesterday, it was on another um, MTV show called Joking Around, and they had actually licensed the, the video for me a year ago, and I totally forgot about it, and someone said, you're on MTV again, and, and there it was. And so it was just on this week. I think it's going to keep replaying, so if anybody watches Joking Around, you'll, you can see it. Otherwise, you can look it up as the da- the boss dances like a boss. And so... As I told Jody before, Jared, I work with 18 to 25-year-olds in the California Conservation Corps, and a lot of them are from urban areas. It's very, very diverse, but we have a lot of members who come in from urban areas, and it's California, so we have a very, very, very diverse group of young people, you know, first generation, immigrants, black, white, every kind of religion, very, very diverse. And so, as a supervisor, I just don't need them in projects like, responding to wildfires or floods or building trails or doing salmon habitat restoration. I'm also helping them deal with the program as a whole. The CCC is a program, a state youth workforce development program. And so educational requirements after work are a huge part of our program. And just developing as a person and as a citizen is a huge part of our program. You know, they volunteer all the time. They're trying to earn scholarships. They live on residential campuses, most of them. So there's a lot of different issues that I help them navigate. And so I need to connect with them. I need them to trust me as soon as possible. I need them to feel comfortable talking to me. We need to establish a relationship as quickly as possible so that we can work on a lot of these really tough challenges that they're going to face in our program. So I've been really creative about that. I've definitely like reached back into my childhood to pull out some things that I think would be relevant to connect to youth. And you know, one of the things that's really fun to connect other humans with is dancing. So Whenever I get new people on my career, especially core members that are from urban areas where dance culture seems to be you know, thriving a little bit better than in, in the other cultures, like rural cultures. So um, every once in a while, when we go on these spikes, where we stay out in the wilderness for like eight days at a time and when they are sitting on the fire at night, sometimes I'll put on music and dance with them. And it blows their mind and makes them feel comfortable with me. They get to laugh at me because I'm this big, hairy, overweight, white dude busting out these moves that you'd expect from a 20-year-old you know, guy from the city. And uh, it, it helps us go through barriers with really us and connect so we can work on deeper issues. And one time, one of these sessions was caught on video and I uploaded it to my YouTube. And so I uploaded that video, but only after they told me that I really needed to because I saw it and I was going to delete it on the camera. You know, I was like, oh, no one needs to see a fat white boy, you know, dancing like this. You know, I had my cowboy hat on. It's like, no one needs to see this. And the two other guys in the video... Antoine McCoy and Leonard Patton. They were like, no, put it on YouTube because this is gonna, we want our moms to see it at least. And I was new to social media. In fact, my core members set up my Facebook and my YouTube accounts for me originally because they wanted their friends and their families to see the work, the really cool work that we were doing, the like really cool places where we were going. So I said, like, right, tell your mom, they got two weeks to see this video and I'm taking it off YouTube because it embarrasses me. And I put it up there and right away people were like, I love this. And I'm sending this to my friend. And I was like, okay, all right, well. And then I got started getting emails from professors and they were saying, this is a great example of cultural competency. Can I share it with my class? And that's when I started to realize the value. And that's when I saw it, like outside of my like insecurities and saw it for what it was. It was beautiful. This is something that I always do the core members. And this was like, you know, a phenomenon that always got us together where I broke a stereotype. And so they didn't feel like they had to live or fit into some kind of social norm or stereotype. We could just be us. We could just be real. And I think that's why the video took off the way it did.
1: All right, so I want to I want to bring this up, John, because I am I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm stereotyped. You know, people look at me, okay, you know, white boy. And my wife, when I dance at weddings or anywhere, she always gives me this look and like makes fun of me and um I am not a good dancer and so you know and, and Jody and I don't mean any offense with this next question but you know you've kind of alluded to it you don't necessarily look like the person who's going to be able to dance the way that you dance so let, let's explain the moves and where did they come from
0: okay so that's an interesting question when I was a little kid I was hyperactive you know teachers were always trying to hold me back in school and my parents my dad believed in you know spare the rod squirrel child so I got so many spankings in my house. You walked by, it would sound like people were inside giving an standing ovation. I got spankings. <laughs> all the time. And so my sister, I had this sister who was the perfect child, you know, three days, you know, she went on to be cheerleader or president senior class. She was just, I just couldn't compete. I didn't stand a chance. And she loved to tell on me because I was often like cutting her Bobby doll's hair or pushing her or doing something to her. So she would tell on me that the one thing that, that she loved more than anything else was Donnie and Marie Ottman and Grief, the movie Grief. But it's really hard to pretend like you're the, you know, the, the female star of the show if you don't have, like, a male counterpart. And so we started trading Don't Tell Me for dancing partners. And so I would dance there. She wouldn't tell me. It was the one thing we could do together where we weren't fighting, be busy and moving. And we started going to, you know, little kid birthday parties in the 70s where disco dance competitions were really popular. And her and I would sweep them. We'd win. I like to throw in the winning competitions And so I was like really into it. And I got very, very coordinated. And my parents were dancers sure. too. And ironically, part of the reason why my parents were attracted to each other in high school is because they were the two white kids that could dance. So there's some, maybe some genetics involved. I don't know. But um, we lived in a very, very multiracial, multicultural area. And when breakdancing came out, I saw it. My sister saw it. We were like, we could, you know, we could do that. We're practically doing that now. And so I started breakdancing, and I got known as White Boy Fresh. I was like the only white kid that was breakdancing. <laughs> and uh, I popped and break dance. And when I did it, it shocked people because they weren't see, used to seeing white kids break dance. And So it encouraged me to practice and practice and practice, and I, I loved dancing. And, you know, during the 80s, dance culture was pretty popular. So we were dancing in my garage. We were dancing in the living room. We were dancing at the park. And um, I just learned to be coordinated. This is, you know, practice, 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 practice makes perfect. But I want to tell you, Deb, that don't stop, don't stop dancing just because your wife's giving you those looks. <laughs> dancing is about, dancing goes back so far in human history and, you know, they probably always had dance battles and dance competitions and best dancers in every single culture. But cultures need to dance together. You know, one thing that kind of saddens me about American culture is that if you're not a great dancer, you don't dance. I think everybody should be dancing because it's a, it's a, it's a way to connect to each other and it's about feeling music and about, you know, using your body. And I think a lot of other cultures still get that. I was just watching a Maori Haka and I was almost moved to tears because they were doing it together and it was powerful. It was beautiful. Or if you see a lot of the dances out of Africa where people are singing and playing instruments and dancing of all ages, it's so beautiful. And I think it's something that we're missing from our society. It's really actually tragic to me that we're missing that in our
2: society. John, it's ironic that they call you or used to call you white boy fresh because my dancing stinks so bad they would call me white boy stale.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's what they were used to. That's why I got
2: the fresh title. Well, John, this is where your story starts to get really good. Your dancing has led to helping advance some causes that you're really passionate about. Tell us how your dancing is connected to diversity and wildlife conservation.
0: Well, racially and ethnically diversifying the wildlife conservation movement has always been a huge, huge drive of mine, concern of mine, because we are all in this together. And when you go to a lot of like Sierra Club meetings, Audubon meetings, or even. The employees at national parks, the state parks, and all of the, you know, the natural resource places, entities, it's, they're overwhelmingly white, and the employees or the participants, and often with the environmental groups, are overwhelmingly white and old, and so I noticed this as soon as I left my neighborhood and went to Northern California to work for the CDC and Forest Service and Wildlife Conservation Society, I, I really noticed this because it didn't look like my neighborhood, and... Um, I thought about it, I was looking around, I remember being in Audubon meeting or a Syracuse, I can't remember which it was, when I was very young, and looking around and we were talking about saving a spotted out or something. And I thought we gotta hurry up and save it because ninety-nine percent of the people in this room are old, white, and gray. So this animal's, you know, advocates, there's an expiration date on this group. And if everybody dies off, we're to defend this animal. And I still feel that way. And I was just quoted, I, I was in a, I'm in a documentary that's in the wild and phoenix Film just Film festival right now with Teresa Baker and Robert Hanna, John Muir's great great grandson. It was part of the John Muir discussion on diversity and relevancy, and it got made into a film by the John Muir Project. And um, it's now touring the nation as part of the environmental film festival. And I said that. I said the group is old, white, and gray with everyone trying to protect that as an expiration date. And that is real. And that is a very important thing for people to think about. Because those groups have been exclusionary. Historically, they've been exclusionary and they're still being exclusionary. Not like intentionally. These aren't like evil exclusionary people. It's that diversity takes, you need to be informed, you need to be open, you need to reach out and build a relationship. It's not just about outreach. It's not just about putting a brochure in Spanish. It's about building a relationship with people in that community and relating to them on issues, on environmental issues that are important to them. And you know what? If you look, at the voting stamp stats, people of color vote for parks and environmental protection way more than white people do. But if you go look at Sierra Club, if you go look at who the biologists are, that is not reflected. And that's something we really need to bring together. There's an opportunity here for environmental groups, for people who love parks. So I do remember your question. I'm going to it right now. <laughs> so I wanted to help connect all these different communities and put them t- together on the campaign that, that matters so much to us, saving the environment, keeping our resources intact so that our grandchildren can be prosperous. So I want to do this on all levels. But you know, one of the things I'm good at, I'm good at edutainment. There's people who are good at different things, raising you know, fundraisers. There's people who are into the legal aspect and arguing and stuff like that. I'm not a real confrontational person. I like to have fun. I like to edutain. So one of the things that I've been doing is trying to incorporate all kinds of different communities with things we can come together and have fun while increasing our aware- awareness about meaningful things. And so I created the BioBlitz Dance. So the BioBlitz Dance, we're from Outdoor Afro. Her and I have had a very long and, and awesome relationship, partnership, and where She helps create opportunities for the youth. And I've helped, like, raise awareness that her group, Outdoor Afro, exists. And Outdoor Afro slogans where Black people in nature meet. She's a wonderful person. She's a mentor. She's a good friend. And um, she invited me to come participate in the National Geographic BioBlitz event. Now, National—well, if you've heard David's interview with John Davis, he talks about how the centennial anniversary in 2016, 100-year anniversary of, of National Parks, how they try to create this huge umbrella to encompass lots of partnerships and move forward to celebrate parks together or the Find Your Park campaign and stuff like that. So one of those partnerships was with National Geographic. So National Geographic did a BioBlitz event in 10 different parks in the 10 years preceding the centennial anniversary. And what that is is people come together, volunteer groups, classes, families. They tune up with a scientist, a volunteer scientist, and they go do a species inventory in that park. So in 2014, it was Golden Gate Park. And so people teamed up with these scientists, a bunch of school groups and stuff. And then went out, there's this little iNaturalist app that helps you take inventory. You take a picture of something you find, and it uploads it to the California Academy of Sciences database. And then biologists can use that information to map uh, wildlife trends. Really cool citizen science program. But accompanying the Bioblitz event is the Biodiversity Festival. And that's where I came in. So I helped Lou find some people that would be relevant to a Bay Area audience. Bay Area is very, 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 very diverse. And so the people we invited were very, very, very diverse. And a lot of them were hip-hop artists. So I thought my job was done when I recommended comics out in the actual season. And she insisted that I participate. So I didn't know what to do. And so I took it to my core members, my crew. We talked about it. I created a dance. We talked about the C G C. We did the Biobus dance, which has three core moves and then a freestyle move. And we did that on stage, but before we did it on stage, we had a YouTube video and lots of people saw it. So when we got to the BioBlitz event, all these kids came on stage and they did it with us. We totally didn't anticipate that. It was wonderful. It's on videos. That video is on my um, channel. It's titled Unexpected Awesomeness. And, um, <laughs> and since then, the BioBlitz dance have gone worldwide. There's 60 BioBlitz dance video responses from all around the world, two from Africa, Romania. New Zealand, all kinds of different national parks. And now we have a Find Your Park BioBlitz Stance Challenge where you can challenge other national parks or city parks or state parks or wildlife refuges. We have a couple of people from wildlife refuges. And you challenge other conservation groups or whatever and you do the BioBlitz Stance, and then they do the Bible Stance back and they challenge someone else. And if so much participate in that, there's all kinds of instructional videos on my YouTube. Just make sure the Bible Stance has one rule. It must be done outdoors. The other thing is it must include the three original moves or it's not the dance. Don't call it the dance unless it has the three original moves. And just to a summary on this is Bible dance is a celebration outdoors, diversity in the conservation movement, and the centennial anniversary of the National Park Service.
2: So, John, outside of dancing, you... Also written a book, Totem Magic Going Mad. Why did you write that book?
0: Well, for the same reasons, I wasn't seeing people who looked like my neighborhood in the conservation movement. And so I've really experimented with a whole buffet of campaigns to try and, and make this happen. And one of them was the book. So Totem Magic Going Mad is it has a diverse cast of characters that are based on people from my neighborhood. So, Latinos, Blacks, everyone. And they are born to be, totem mages are born to be the magical protectors of endangered species. And so it's a book, it's the story of Volchi, who wasn't actually born to be the protector of endangered species. He was born to be the protector of a relatively common species, which makes him an anomaly and actually a grim anomaly, a grim phenomenon, because all the other totem mages are like, oh no, this must mean the end of the world, because he was born to protect an animal that's not endangered, which means we're all endangered. And instead of going into evolutionary mode about this, they ended up picking on him and bullying him. And he, like a lot of the totem mages have characteristics of their animals. He's the magical protector of the turkey vulture. And so he's bald, he's unattractive, when he gets scared, he throws up on things. And so even among non-magical people who don't know he's a totem mage, he's picked on by them too because he's, he's ugly. So I wrote that book, and I've donated all the money to groups that are promoting diversity in the conservation movement and wildlife
1: care centers. All right. So, John, this podcast is called Starve the Doubts, and that's something that you've certainly done. Tell us – let's go back a little bit. You talked earlier about uh, when you were younger. I want to go back to that just for a moment. Tell us a bit about your younger days and how you broke free from the path that you were on.
0: are you talking about when I – started going bad. <laughs> I,
1: um, Breaking bad. No, no meth labs, but yeah, you get the point.
0: Yeah, well, actually, there were meth labs. <laughs> I, I was an angry young man. I had some personal issues, but you know, I had some father issues. I'm sure that no one who's listening to this can relate. I had some father issues. My dad was a cop and very, very religious and under tons of stress and was doing the best he could with what he was taught to do, which wasn't enough for kid like me who was hyperactive and wanted to know why was always questioning. So we just clashed and clashed and clashed. And so part of my, you know, I had 11-year-old consciousness, 11-year-old, 12-year-old angry consciousness. And so part of my way of getting back at my father and being a rebellious mad kid was to do things that he didn't want me to do. And that included smoking cigarettes, doing drugs, fighting, all that kind of stuff. And I was just not, I didn't have developed enough worldview to realize that that was just destroying me. So by the time I was 14, I was doing every drug that I could that was available to me, and mostly methamphetamines, and became addicted, and ended up dropping out of school and getting kicked out of my house a couple times. 15 the first time, and then they let me back in, and then 16, and I was doing meth pretty much every day when I was 17 years old, and I had some horrible experiences around being a homeless drug addict teenager, as you can imagine, and. I loved the outdoors. I've always loved the outdoors. My grandparents, and my mom had, like, instilled that love and passion for the outdoors in me. And I just wanted to leave the city. I knew a lot of my problems were tied to where I lived because of the availability of all these bad things. And that's what I had, you know, made connections with. So I heard about the CCC. A guy in my school named Ronnie Rickoff told me about the California Conservation Corps. And he also had drug problem, and he was trying to get away from it. And I I realized I needed to get away from it, so I joined the PCC. And when I got to the California Constitution Corps as an eighteen year old, a couple of the um, supervisors there said, "Hey, look at you! You're a meth head. If you're going to stay in this program, you got to go to NA." And I was like tweaking out. I was on meth when I arrived, and I was like, "No, no." And they're like, "Look, we can tell. You got to get clean. If you want to do this program, you got to go to NA." So they put me in NA. It's funny that one of the people who did this, she was a She's a supervisor at the time. She's now the regional director, but they helped guide me into Narcotics Anonymous and I got drug free in the CCC and I got my GED and I got experience that led me to the forest service. And it was a complete catalyst to turn my life around the California conservation Corps. And just getting out of my element. And they took me to this residential center that was, you know, 300 miles away from my hometown. And I made a complete turnaround and have been rebuilding my life through my twenties. And, um, And I have a good relationship with my parents now, and um, I am totally grateful and owe every bit of my success to the California Conservation Corps.
2: John, what is the message you have for someone who's struggling and doubting themselves? I
0: have a lot of messages. Let Let me see if I can prioritize. You know sometimes I, I don't like the sugarcoat things. And so like I think one of the things that's important to do is to realize that people who are struggling with self-doubt and stuff, they've grown up in a society where Disney has a happy ending for every one of their shows. And I think, and the fairy tales too, a lot of the fairy tales. And so we kind of put that model up, you know, because we're such this like media influenced people. That's the model that we think life is supposed to be, but it's completely unrealistic. And I think that has a lot to do with why a lot of us have anxiety, self-esteem and depression is because, We're modeling our lives based on Hollywood, which always has a happy ending. And so we beat ourselves up for not having a happy ending. So one of the things that I tell people, because I'm i not a psychologist and I'm not a trained counselor, but one of the things that I tell like my core members is, if it feels difficult, it's because it is difficult. And it's going to continue to be difficult. And we're always going to have challenges and issues. We're always going to have that. And so what we need to learn how to do is to manage ourselves and manage our attitude, and try to be as solution-oriented as possible, but to accept that we're going to be upset. You know, it's like flowers don't bloom year around. Neither are you. But there's always that season where they do bloom. And so you just have to keep going until you reach that. That's what I tell people because that's real.
1: Uh, well said. Uh, John, who is doing something that interests you?
0: Oh, there's so many people. Joe does stuff that interests me. <laughs> i love those interviews i love people who are trying to connect youth to opportunities i love people who are trying to raise the awareness of society like talking about diversity and promoting diversity in the conservation movement Who are trying to make sure that we are all understanding each other and resolving things in a peaceful way Rumat out from outdoor afro definitely does things i'm interested in Teresa baker from african-american national park experience and her just getting a message out about the very very important role that black people have had in the outdoors movement, historically, national parks like the Buffalo Soldiers, you know, being the first like rangers and trail workers, and of um, of Yosemite and Sequoia, and I believe things, too. So I love this kind of work, and Jose from Latino outdoors. I really like the people who are advocating for wildlife, and people who are volunteers at wildlife rehab centers, where they're taking care of the individual animal instead of like the broader like habitat themes. Those people who volunteer to go on a few baby birds or take care of injured, back in, the compassion that they have, the empathy and compassion that they have just like overwhelms me when I go to, you know, I visit the Wildlife Care Center and, and volunteer locally. And just those people who have so much compassion and are acting on it, just I love those people. Those are the people who are doing stuff that I'm totally interested in. Just compassionate, empathetic people who have dedicated their lives to helping others, the environment, non-human animals.
2: Well, Jared, I'll tell you now, I didn't plant that seed with John to give me a plug. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, as as we finish up here, how can people connect with you online? I encourage
1: people
0: to visit my YouTube channel, and I you know, apologize that I don't have great quality of, of videos. I'm learning video editing software right now. I just partnered with Broadband TV, and they're helping me out. They're giving me lots of tools, and I'm learning those tools. So The quality of videos is going to increase. Right now, you can see... A lot of what I just talked about, you can see that reflected in the video. So my YouTube channel, you can just put in John Griffiths, and it will come up with me wearing a yellow hard hat. Or you can put in the name of my book, Totem Magic Going Mad, which is also on Amazon if anybody wants to buy that. And Facebook, um, I have a Totem Magic Going Mad Facebook page, which I don't interact with very much anymore because Facebook changed the algorithm. So unless you're filthy rich, people don't see what you put out on your fan page. So my personal page, John Griffiths. I get a lot of friends requests, and I don't accept them all. But if someone says, if they okay, send me an email that says, start the Dow of park leaders, I will definitely friend them. And that's a good way to I'm pretty active on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Totemagic. And I'm getting ready to start an Instagram page. It'll probably just be like John Griffith or John Griffith Nature and Dance. And those are the ways that people can connect with me.
1: Love it. Hey, John, we always give our guests the opportunity to have a final thought. So do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Yeah,
0: I would... Invite the listeners, if you know anyone who's 18, 25, who's looking for an opportunity to help their community get money for scholarships, or just need some job skills to look into a core program, there's bills right now in the Senate called the 21st century core. They're going to bring back a federal core program. It, I mean, the our local core won't go away. It'll just mostly be a funding source. But there's like 127 plus, maybe 140 core programs all over the United States. But if your listeners know you a young person who needs the opportunity or who just wants to pick up some natural resource skills, you know, please look in the core program. You can go to the corenetworks.org, dot korg and find a core program near you. Core programs are solutionary-based entities. When you go there, you will serve your community and the environment. And I think that's a great place to be between 18 and 25, serving your community. And that's my final thought. Uh,
1: well said, John. We appreciate your time. And, uh, Jody, thank you for being humble about your dancing skills and, uh, you know, your popularity.
0: (laughs) I wanted to help connect all these different communities and put them together on the campaign that matters so much to us, saving the environment, keeping our resources intact so that our grandchildren can be prosperous.